Broadcasting on the Drug Truth Network, this is Cultural Baggage. It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American. My name is Dean Becker. I don't condone or encourage the use of any drugs, legal or illegal. I report the unvarnished truth about the pharmaceutical, banking, prison, and judicial nightmare that feeds on eternal drug war. Welcome to this edition of Cultural Baggage. We'll be talking mostly today about the burning of Rainbow Farm some five years ago, the death of Tom Croslin and Raleigh Rome at the hands of law enforcement officials. But first, this Drug Truth Network editorial. It is you, Mr. and Ms. Politician, responsible for unconstitutional, irrational, and unenforceable laws. It is you, the district attorneys, who decide to prosecute minorities and the economically disadvantaged drug users you can scrape off the street corner for possessing minuscule amounts of drugs or drug paraphernalia. It is you, the policeman on the beat, who prefers to make his bones, to get ahead by racking up the easy busts of drug users to get that lieutenant's badge. It is you, the doctors, nurses, scientists, and other medical practitioners who remain silent, who embrace ignorance, and who truly remain very much complicit in maintaining and escalating this 90-year-old war on drugs. But most of all, it is you, the listener, the average Joe and Jolene, who, knowing full well the truth of this matter, remain silent, eerily closeted and quiet. All this hypocrisy, all the propaganda, all the misery, lies, collusion, confusion, and corruption is done in the name of the children. Meantime, we arrest U.S. citizens at the rate of 1.7 million per year. Every 20 seconds, another youngster is arrested for drugs. Another bond is made or another sentence served. Another lawyer is hired. Another prosecutor is further overloaded. Another court docket is further clogged. Another family is burdened. Another future is hindered or destroyed. Worldwide, the problems of the U.S. drug war rear their ugly heads on a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute basis. The Taliban is reaping a bonanza from the record harvest of opium in Afghanistan. Mexico suffers from continual infightings of cartels and gangs for the right to sell these recreational drugs to Americans. 1,500 deaths so far this year that we know of. Beheadings, burnt bodies, grenade attacks on the press, corruption at every level of law enforcement, just like in the USA. It's too bad the politicians cannot see the forest for the trees, or better stated, cannot separate the roots of prohibition from the dangerous harvest of drug war. In the October 31, 2002 issue of the Washington Post, Benjamin Ariano Felix the man accused of once running Mexico's most ruthless drug cartel, told the Post from his prison cell, quote, If drugs were like cigarettes or alcohol, there wouldn't be a black market. It would put an end to the capos, end quote. Because of drug prohibition, simple weeds and flowers like marijuana, the coca bush, and the opium poppy can, through simple processes, become worth more than solid gold. 
Prohibition allows peasant campesinos with a penchant for violence to become billionaires. Hence, the latest round of beheadings in Mexico is not simply predictable. It is a necessary and eternal part of the U.S. mandated black market in drugs. The ignorance of those in office or the feigned ignorance, is the real problem of the drug war. And it's most troubling, but these elected officials' inability to grasp the solution that is already at hand is most vexing. Those in power who think we can negate the law of supply and demand and who think we can end this game of who wants to be a billionaire by continuing the decades-old war on drugs are not worthy of their office. In Houston... Texas, and much of the U.S., public officials remain silent, utterly incapable of defending the policy of eternal drug war, or of speaking out against the abuses inflicted on the 1.7 million nonviolent U.S. drug users arrested each year. Their only answer is more of the same. More arrests, more prisons, more forfeiture laws, more treatment, more urine tests, more probation, and more destruction of innocent lives in nations like Mexico, Colombia, and Afghanistan. We want to destroy the cartels in Colombia and Mexico. We want to prevent the Taliban from turning flowers into gold to buy bigger weapons with which to kill us. We want to eliminate the violent gangs. We want to take away our children's easy access to drugs. We want to curtail the number of overdose deaths and the number of AIDS and Hep C cases. Drug war will never achieve these goals. But the end of drug prohibition will solve each of these problems immediately. These politicians have made their bones by being tough on drug users and by being soft-headed on drug prohibition. The drug war ends when you, yes, you, say enough, when you dare to openly speak the truth, when you dare to write your elected officials, your local paper, and say, enough. Tom Crosland and Raleigh Rome were gunned down by armed agents of government on their own property for daring to say enough. Scott Teeter was the Michigan prosecutor who had the vendetta, the jihad, against Rainbow Farm, Tom and Raleigh, and is the man ultimately responsible for creating this situation. This is a friend of Tom and Raleigh's, Melody Carr. It seems pretty obvious to me that Scott Teeter went in there wanting to quash the whole marijuana movement. It wasn't about, you know, whatever plants may have been found or, or anything like that. Silencing the movement. The personal responsibility amendment was going strong that summer. I think that they were afraid we were actually going to change something. And uh, <laughs> Scott Teeter's whole unintended legacy is that he didn't squash the movement in Michigan. He galvanized it. The movement in Michigan is stronger than ever. We have four cities that have passed medical marijuana uh, initiatives. We have other cities that are working on them. Uh, we have a strong statewide organization now, which we didn't have back then, with a lot of strong local chapters. And a lot of the people involved met at Rainbow Farm, and, and a lot of the people involved never went to Rainbow Farm but heard about it and were angry about it. And... Uh, I think the whole thing just totally backfired on his purpose. So I'm pretty pleased about that. It's a shame that the price had to be so high. And it's a shame that, you know, now if somebody gets in trouble, if one of our members has a, a law issue and it's, 
you know, clearly an unjust situation. Sometimes they've been targeted for because they wrote letters to the editor and were open about their views. Um, now we go and we protest and we stand up for each other. And back when the whole Rainbow Farm thing was going on, there weren't a lot of people who were doing that. So once again, the prosecutor, Scott Teeter, was enraged by what was going on at Rainbow Farms, people daring to speak about changing the law, some of them using marijuana. So by way of a tax investigation, they busted into the Rainbow Farms, found several plants growing there, and began their persecution, prosecution of Tom Crosland and Raleigh Rome. Eventually, they took away Raleigh's son, Robert, and put him in the home of a nearby sheriff and began proceedings to take away the property of Rainbow Farm. Here to tell us about the closing days, the closing moments of Tom Crosland and Raleigh Rome is their good friend, Adam Brook. And Labor Day weekend, the FBI and the Michigan State Police had 120 agents between the two organizations surrounding the trees surrounding the property in the trees on um, the day that uh, Tom was killed. Um, Tom was killed first, actually. He had gone out at night with, uh, he had taken his rifle and gone to the neighbor's house next door to grab a, some coffee. And it was one of those deals where in those rural communities it wasn't unknown to break into your neighbor's house to take a cup of coffee. And he had an arrangement with the neighbor. That wasn't a problem. But as Tom was coming back to the house, three agents from the FBI had uh, crawled up into the uh, property and startled Tom, and one of them shot him in the head. We're not sure what or why, because, of course, the only witnesses are FBI agents, at which point, you know, Tom is dead and Raleigh's still in the house. They started negotiating with Raleigh, and he wanted to see his son, and he made a deal with the police that they would bring his son to the property at 7 o'clock in the morning the following morning and um, that morning while according to the, the reports that Dean Cuppers was able to read um, you know he never pointed this weapon at anybody however while he was running around and a little confused with the dog the Michigan State Police had rolled a, an armored car an armored carrier type thing into the front yard of the house and one of them opened the hatch and Raleigh had the rifle in his hand and when one of them opened the hatch and popped his head up one of the snipers in the tree shot Raleigh. The, the interesting thing is that as one would expect the death of Tom and Raleigh had a major impact on the legalization movement in the state of Michigan. Many activists um, were really afraid to come out um, you know, there were many of us that for that Labor Day weekend were cowered in the, uh, you know, hotels of our, hotel rooms of our attorneys, you know. Um, but, uh, that really was a big blow to Michigan. Our, our ballot initiative that was being, first of all, was being funded by events that were occurring at Rainbow Farm. They, they were donating major amounts of dollars to, to help fund these ballot initiatives. Well, that took, that was a major blow when we lost that and of course the one thing you have to remember is that the the tragedy of Rainbow Farm which I referred to it as the Waco of weed it was our private Waco and the reason I say it was our private Waco 
is because it only was in the newspapers for six days, seven, eight days max. And then 9-11 happened, and it completely got erased. Warning, the government doesn't want you to hear this ad. Because they're embarrassed. They funded research indicating marijuana doesn't cause lung cancer and might even prevent cancer. Government research also found medical uses for marijuana, and no one has ever died of a marijuana overdose. The more research the government conducts, the more they undermine their own war on marijuana users. Visit the Marijuana Policy Project Foundation at joinmpp.org or call toll-free 1-877-JOIN-MPP. If you would like to learn more about Rainbow Farms and the killings of Tom Croslin and Raleigh Rome, I urge you to listen to this week's Century of Lies program, which is available now at drugtruth.net. Or please visit the website of the Rainbow Farm, which is at rainbowfarm.org. Now let's tune in to the Houston Chronicle and a recent headline, Beheadings, a Sign of Mexico Turf War. Bloody scene in a once tranquil state underscores growing violence. Masked gunmen burst into a nightclub early Wednesday and flung five human heads onto the dance floor in what was easily one of the most shocking incidents of drug violence in Mexico this year. The Light and Shadow Club in the city of Europon in Michoacan State was packed when the men stormed in at 1.30 a.m. and ordered customers onto the floor, state police officials said. Then they pulled the bloody heads from plastic bags and tossed them out in front of the horrified crowd. The assailants, suspected drug gang members wearing police uniforms, also left a message scrawled on cardboard. Quote, The family doesn't kill for money. It doesn't kill women, and it doesn't kill the innocent. Only those who deserve it die. Let it be known, this is divine justice. End quote. Mishwakan's Attorney General Juan Antonio Magana played down the state's role in the violence. Quote, this is lamentable and worrisome, he told reporters on Wednesday, but it goes well beyond our borders. End quote. Violence this year is also plaguing the resort cities of Acapulco, Cancun, and Zihuatanejo as the wars between rival drug gangs fan south across the country. At stake is the distribution of tons of cocaine and other drugs which will end up on the streets of Los Angeles, Houston, and other American cities, and traffickers are more than willing to kill for their share of the multi-billion dollar trade. Quote, if current murder rates continue, the body count will equal or surpass the figure for 2005, end quote. The U.S.-based Frontera Notesur News Service said Sunday, quote, the major part of the nation is now embroiled in organized crime feuds. Traffickers' increasingly gruesome methods include blowing their victims up with grenades, cutting them to pieces, or chopping off their heads. Gang members are also more brazen in choosing their targets. On August 17th, suspected hitmen gunned down a federal judge. Judges who are rarely attacked are now demanding police protection. Mexican officials say the violence is the result of their own success in beheading the drug cartels. Quote, their heads have been deactivated and put in a jar, end quote. The criminal organizations have no way of reacting other than with violence, and violence begets violence. There's a huge black market in weapons in the United States that they have to control, Mexican officials said. If they close that, the traffickers would be hitting each other with stones instead of bazookas. 
The fertile region surrounding Michoacan has a long history of producing marijuana and poppies for making heroin. These days, however, some locals are shunning agriculture in favor of the more profitable synthetic drug trade. In August, 24 municipal police officers were indicted on charges of conspiring with the powerful Gulf cartel, whose bloody rivalry with the Sinaloa cartel is blamed for much of the violence nationwide. The traffickers have also corrupted state and federal police. Quote, the only way to stop the violence in Michoacan would be to replace the entire police force at all levels, said a state intelligence official, speaking on condition of anonymity. You can't imagine what a huge problem we have here. End quote. Despite the magnitude of the problem in Mexico and Colombia, perhaps there is an even larger problem that exists in Afghanistan. Most of the Drug Truth Network reporters today address that situation. A record year for Afghan opium production. Next week, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime will officially release its estimate of Afghan opium production. The numbers have actually been leaking out for the past few weeks, because this year's increase is staggering. Total opium cultivation in Afghanistan is up by more than 50%. Actual opium output is up at least 49%, with an estimated yield of 6,100 metric tons of opium. That's enough to produce 610 tons of heroin. According to the Washington Post, quoting UN figures, that's one-third more than the world's heroin users are estimated to consume in a year. It's possible that some of that heroin will be stockpiled. Yet even so, it's likely that worldwide average prices will drop and purity will increase because of this oversupply. Times do change. In 2001, the Taliban government's harsh clampdown on production brought Afghanistan's total output to a mere 185 metric tons of opium. Now, the Taliban is reportedly using proceeds from opium production and from guarding heroin smugglers to fund its insurgency. Yet the Taliban and other insurgents are not the only bad guys. Warlords and regional governors, who are purportedly at least allied with the Western occupiers, are also reputed to be involved in the trade. In one province, almost 30,000 acres of government land are being used to illegally produce opium poppies. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh, editor of DrugWarFacts.org. This is Phil Smith of the Drug War Chronicle with this week's corrupt cop stories for the Drug Truth Network. This week, the temptations of the border tarnish another Texas lawman's badge, a Tulsa cop is convicted of being too helpful to a drug dealer, and a pair of Newark's finest plead guilty to a pill-pushing scheme. In McAllen, Texas, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Texas issued a press release announcing the August 29th indictment of a former South Texas police officer for allegedly taking a bribe to protect what he thought was a cocaine shipment. Former Elsa City police officer Herman Carr, age 45, is accused of taking a $5,000 payment from an undercover FBI agent to use his position as a law enforcement officer to protect a vehicle he was told contained 5 kilos of cocaine. He's charged with bribery and faces up to 20 years in federal prison. Over in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a federal jury last Friday found a former Tulsa police officer guilty of conspiracy, obstruction of justice, and providing unlawful notice of a search warrant. Former officer Rico Yarborough was convicted of informing a suspected drug dealer that a search warrant was about to be served at his residence, the Tulsa World reported. In February, Yarborough called a Tulsa man and asked him to inform the suspected dealer of the impending raid. Unfortunately for Yarborough, the conversation was being recorded. Federal investigators who had wiretapped the suspected dealer's phone overheard references to Yarborough, then fed him information to see if he would leak it. 
He did. He was found not guilty on two related counts, but still faces significant prison time when sentenced on November 29th. Meanwhile, in Newark, New Jersey, two Newark police officers pleaded guilty in federal court Tuesday to charges they bought thousands of OxyContin pills from a doctor and resold them, the Associated Press reported. Patrolman John Hernandez and Ronald Pompanio face up to 20 years in prison and a million dollars in fines when sentenced in December for conspiracy to distribute oxycodone. The pair admitted in court that Hernandez purchased OxyContin tablets valued at hundreds of thousands of dollars, while Pompanio took prescriptions for the pills to pharmacies across the state. The doctor from whom they allegedly purchased the drugs has pleaded not guilty. That's all of our corrupt cop stories this week, but for links to more information as well as more Drug War Chronicle stories, check us out online at www.stopthedrugwar.org. And don't forget, we have a new interactive website, The Speakeasy, where you can talk to us and maybe even do your own blog. Again, check us out at www.stopthedrugwar.org. A while back, I spoke about the heroin issue in Afghanistan. Well, it's back in the news with the United Nations reporting that opium cultivation rose a staggering 59% in the country this year. The United Nations anti-drug chief announced that he is urging the Afghan government to crack down on large traffickers and remove corrupt officials and police. This record crop yielded 6,100 tons of opium, or enough to make 610 tons of heroin, outstripping the demand of the world's heroin users by a third, according to U.N. figures. Officials further warned that the illicit traffic is undermining the Afghan government. Well, it is probably funding the insurgent Taliban fighters that have been reemerged in that country as well. The Sinless Council, a security and development policy group, had previously recommended a regulatory control of the opium production. It appears this approach was not heeded, and the more aggressive U.S. policy of get tough from the drug dealers has failed miserably. An apparent success in Afghanistan turning sour, partly because of the way the opium farmers have been treated. I can't think of a single country that prohibition and get tough on drugs has worked. Why is it so hard for our leaders to grasp that this is a failed pu- public policy and that it must be changed. In 1998, the United Nations General Assembly organized a special session to review the world's illicit drug problem. Heads of state and country delegations met with the intention of evaluating current uh, global drug policy. Despite the lack of evidence that the war on drugs policy was successful, the United Nations special session agreed to continue this same strategy and aim for a drug-free world by 2008. Einstein is reported to have once said, to continue doing the same thing and expecting different results is the definition of insanity. In 2008, the United Nations will sponsor a meeting to review the progress towards these targets. This is the deadline for the creation of new consensus on global drug policy, a moment when the international community can commit to an effective global drug policy that properly addresses the global situation of the consumption of drugs. According to the Stimulus Council, 2008 is an important opportunity for policy and lawmakers, United Nations representatives, academics, as well as media, to mobilize with civil society in order to reevaluate half a century of failed policy. The 2008 meeting is for the international community has is where the United International Community has the opportunity to reframe the global drug policy and set the foundations for a new consensus. Drugs are too dangerous to be left in the hands of terrorists and criminals. What is the solution? Legalization, regulation, and control of all drugs. The criminal gangs and terrorists must be removed from the distribution chain, and then the associated violence will also stop. It's time for a change. Together, let's find a solution for our future. 
Terry Nelson on behalf of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, at www.leap.cc, signing off. And now for another black perspective on the drug war. Down in the poor part of town, there's a couple who comes by to visit from time to time. And when they come, they throw a sort of party for you and your friends and neighbors. They show you all sorts of useful products from baby formula and disposable diapers to music CDs and cookware, all at fantastically low prices. No, they don't represent Mary Kay or Avon. This enterprising couple is addicted to crack cocaine, and they represent Scamway. Scamway prices can't be beat, because... You only pay what you can afford. And the selection is beyond compare. In fact, if they don't have exactly what you're looking for, just tell them what you want, and they'll have it for you the very next day. How's that for service? All their goods are, of course, stolen. Right off the shelves, delivery trucks, and loading docks of the stores in your area. This couple, like thousands of others, sells just enough goods to support their coke habit. But how much is that? For the two of them, let's assume a modest habit of, say, $1,000 a week. Since they sell their merchandise at mere pennies on the dollar, they have to steal items worth ten to $20,000. And they do it every week. Week after week. Nearly a million dollars a year. Quite a crime wave for one couple. Now, the cops can't arrest this black market away. And their poor, struggling customers are not eager to turn them in. But wait... The drugs that they want to buy with this money, they're buying at prohibition prices. What if the government were to end prohibition and make cocaine available at cost? Why, their $1,000-a-week habit would cost them only about $20. Even if they had to steal that, area businesses would have reduced their inventory losses by 99.9%. And in the end... Aren't these inventory losses paid for by you and I every time we shop? Yes, friends, ending drug prohibition not only reduces crime, but it lowers prices, too. So remember to ask for it next time you're shopping for a politician or representative. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Phil Jackson. Poppygate, bizarre news about the U.S. policy on controlling heroin, featuring Glenn Greenway. Opium cultivation in Afghanistan rose 59% last year. United Nations anti-narcotics chief Antonio Maria Costa said last Friday, This year's harvest has reached the highest level ever recorded, responsible for 610 potential tons of pure heroin, exceeding global consumption by 30% stimulating the opiate receptors of 23 of 25 black market heroin consumers worldwide and, quote, fueling the insurgency in Western Asia, end quote. 610 metric tons yields an estimated 8 and one-half billion individual doses of heroin, assuming 14 doses per gram. Responding to the worst violence since the 2001 American invasion, NATO's commander in Afghanistan has urged allied nations to quickly send reinforcements. At least 49 NATO troops have died there within the last 38 days. The U.S. Department of Justice's 2006 Drug Threat Assessment ominously predicts that events causing Quote, shortages in South American heroin availability 
would most likely result in an increase in Afghan heroin distribution in U.S. drug markets. This is Glenn Greenway reporting for the Drug Truth Network. If it sometimes seems like I'm hammering you over the head with the same glaring, obvious information, well, I am. Some say I'm just preaching to the choir, and again, I am. But it's a good thing when members of the choir can stand up and sing a solo. Quick program note, I want to welcome our 60-second affiliate, KEIF, in Enid, Oklahoma. And once again, I want to invite any drug warrior out there willing to spend 15 minutes explaining the need for drug war to come on our show, and I'll write you a check for $1,200. And as always, I remind you that because of drug prohibition, you don't know what's in that bag. Please be careful. To the Drug Truth Network listeners around the world, on behalf of engineer Philip Guffey, this is Dean Becker for Cultural Baggage and the Unvarnished Truth. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Jap dancing on the edge of cannabis. <laughs>